This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. I'm your co-host, Dimitri. I'm solid. And today, it's been a little while. Yeah, but I was thinking are... that. It has been a while. Like, the last time we really focused on this was, unless you got the Demi Lovato episode, which, like, doesn't... Re- I feel like we haven't really I gone into this. It. Yeah, all right. Counting that, I don't know, but... And the Raelians. Raelians, kind of. Uh, well, I mean, we talk about UFOs all the time, I feel like, or, like, ET stuff. But, like, the sort of disclosure psyop topic we haven't yes. done since episode 44 which really was a long time ago since like our current episodes like the numbering is like not reflective of how many episodes we actually have done at all uh, <laughs> like, yes yes uh, the now abolished yeah. uh, a b c d e system uh, has yes. now been put to rest so we're only racking up pure whole numbers now but was 44 our like blue beam emergency update um, yes, it was our Blue okay. Beam emergency update, and yeah. God, I that was probably what, back in the middle of 2021? I yeah, I think it was in 2021. It was December 2021? No, it was January. January 2021. So that was a while ago, yeah. That was that quite was, early. Yeah, right between LaRouche and Contra 5. Huh. Was there one more? That, no, I think we did one about Stephen Greer in particular. Well, we did Demi, but I think that that was it. We did we did a Stephen Greer one, and then I mean we touched on it in our Reptoid episode, which is number forty. I feel like there was one more, maybe in the fifties or there's the sixties. M- well, there's Mothman, where it came up. It wasn't Mothman because I feel like in the summer of twenty twenty one specifically was when there was something that we were pointing to, like this is blue Mimi as fuck. Editors note: the episode that we could not remember for the life of us was episode 71 about bob lazar and now there have been so many events like this that feel like some kind of project bluebeam psyop that yeah. they're all blending together in my well, the head. summer might have been the first one um because november 8th was the first time we did this i think uh okay. yeah or when we recorded it anyway disclose we'll dig up those links and see but yeah uh, but. we've kind of returned i forget the one where we discussed at length somebody who uh has kind of become like a mainstay sj character on a variety of levels but uh leslie kane yeah uh, we as learned as, 
in doing the research for this episode, we learned that we've been saying Leslie Kane's name wrong because apparently it's not. As I was doing, as I learned that, I was like, Dimitri's going to hate this because I know you hate it when people's names or names of things are pronounced differently from how they're spelled. Um, yeah, or incorrectly. Yeah. Um, incorrectly. I would say, no, um, I, I, it does. I, I am a stickler for it. And uh, I guess we, we showed our, our primitive Irish asses by uh, assuming that her name, K E A N, was pronounced Keen, but. Apparently not, according to Ezra Klein, who probably went to the right prep schools and learned how to do this, uh, kept pronouncing it on the most recent podcast as like, like Kane, but with like a little bit of an inflection of like Kane. Yeah, <laughs> like, you would think like, that you would oh, think that it would rhyme with like Dean or like yeah, mean, lean. All those words that are spelled like some, that. It's, it's some weird Anglo-Dutch yeah, shit, the, probably. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like a marker of class, because as we have covered before, I think this is very relevant to Leslie Keane um, in you know uh, her role as a UFO disclosure person, is that she comes from like a, an extremely esteemed line of like high-class Yankee wasps, basically. Bean. Every E-A-N word yeah. is spelled is pronounced that way. I'm sorry. Uh, yes, yes. But they but made a yeah. big point when she went on with Ezra when he was doing sort of a softball UFO interview with her for the mm-hmm. NYT, um, which, you know, has just opened its arms for her again and again. That, you know, he made a big point of saying Kane, and I was like, uh-oh. Uh, we're, yeah, talk about a psyop. Um, uh, once again, another psyop to make all of us look uh, <laughs> like fools. Yeah, yeah exactly. A lot, Ezra. But no, she is once again, Leslie is once again in the news breaking a big story mm-hmm. about UFOs, which is what Huge brings story. Us, uh, gr- yeah, just groundbreaking. Just yeah. groundbreaking, mm-hmm. uh, earth shatter. I think as Tucker said, like the most important story um, in the world, like yeah. ever in human history. Like, yeah. Exactly. Okay, Tucker, calm down. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> but like, uh, so why? Like, yeah, I was reading this like MYT like opinion piece that uh, I think it was. I want to say it was Ross Duthat who who did it. I, I'm pretty sure. And he was like, "Does the government want you to believe in UFOs?" And I was like, "Okay, Ross Duthat. Like, what do you got for me?" And like, he pretty much I think was like kind of like orbiting, no pun intended, like the right idea. But then in the end, he was like, you know, they're trying to embarrass Tucker and like make Tucker think that there's UFOs. So he says something like something stupid and then he's humiliated. And it's like, (laughs) like, okay, well, how dumb is Tucker then? You know, like, I feel like he's never like learning a lesson. Like all he talks about is like how the government is like lying to you, lying to you. And something changed. They started lying to you. And yet, like every single time he's surprised, like he doesn't have like the presence of mind to like think like, huh, like maybe this isn't like, you know, on the up and up. Like, Genuine. Or like, but, yeah, but he can't like, he can't process the idea that maybe Tucker is like also willfully lying and willfully losing something that he knows like isn't true yes. or truthfully represented. Um, uh, exactly. It just doesn't yeah. occur to him. Once again, Ross uh, sometimes gets close to the mark, but then sometimes just he was, sort of. He's closer to the off. mark than a lot of GOP people have been. Because I have noticed, I think we were talking yes. about this, like, it does seem like this issue is taking on, like, kind of more of a partisan character, interestingly. Not like entirely. I still feel like there's some holdouts, like Leslie Keen sort of orbiting the, you know, the mainstream liberal authoritative media sources. But. Mm-hmm. 
now you definitely see like, you know, yeah, Tucker kind of staking out the issue, which to be fair, he always kind of did. You know, he interviewed like Chris Mellon and stuff, right? I think it was Chris Mellon or at least he Chris boosted. Mellon, another important, uh, extremely wealthy name that like yeah. so many extremely wealthy names just keeps up, keeps popping up in this fucking UFO yeah. disclosure thing. But yeah, I yeah, feel like I think he did he have had Chris, Chris Mellon, Mellon on. Yeah. And he boosted that movie, The Phenomenon, super hard. So he's been like around this issue. But now I feel like, you know, but again, on the other hand, maybe I'm wrong because it is still bipartisan. There was just just a couple days from this recording, a couple days ago, there was like this bipartisan, you know, congressional imperative that was like put forward from like Chris and Gillibrand and also, you know, some Repo- other Republicans and I think maybe some other Democrats or other, you know, Congress people, some Republicans, some Democrats saying like, you know, we order anybody who has like a crashed alien ship to like bring it forward now like under penalty six months yeah yeah it's giving something that that also we've talked about recently which is the mainstreaming of psychedelics where you have an increasing sort of embrace on the right of this Mm -hmm. kind of thing that might have been more the province of like really hippie like new agey liberal types and like libertarians only but not so much embraced ever by the GOP mainstream, um, just like with psychedelics, you had like Matt Gates and AOC co-sponsoring a bill to like increase psilocybin research, and it's like this has become like the Coney twenty twenty three. Like the one thing we can all agree on is like everybody should take psychedelic drugs, and everybody mm-hmm. should, and we should like reveal the truth about UFOs. Um, yeah. Two of the few issues where there is kind of like oddly passionate bipartisan support in Congress, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's a lot in common with both those issues, including, I mean, there's certain people that kind of traverse both those worlds, right, that are interested in sort of entheogens and altered states and also UFOs. There definitely um, is, yeah. Or like seeing DMT entities or like experiencing NDEs and things like that. There's a lot of like, yeah, crossover. And, um, and that kind of utopianism of like, if everybody, if we could sort of uh, trigger a sea change of thinking around this topic, it would change everything. Yeah, it's one of those, right? Like, mm-hmm. there's a certain utopian promise baked into it, and you're especially seeing that now. I think it, with the UFO stuff, it is mostly. I mean, with psychedelics, it's like 99.99 percent excessively positive at all times basically there's like besides like symposia there's very few people that are kind of on the psychedelics or sus on the alien side there might be a a little bit more of a constituency of people that are like don't trust grays or whatever yeah but i'd say that too has much more of an optimistic surge towards like the new agey like they are beings of light and love who want to help us and you know, like the implicit thing being that they could land and solve all of our problems, right? Or that like just somehow like the disclosure of it will solve our problems, like maybe in some kind of Ronald Reagan type of way. It's that weird too. because a lot of the people like around this are like big like defense industry or military people. So, you know, it seems like they're not like necessarily in the peace business. And definitely Hopefully I not. feel like that's been an early, like a, a big pitch for this from the beginning. I mean, I was thinking, you know, relative to the kind of, uh, 
like partisan character or the political positionality of it. I was reading Skin, uh, sorry, Skinwalkers in the Pentagon, which is uh, mm -hmm. by I think James uh, Lakatsky and some other people. Which is I think it came out in 2021. So I, we missed it like the first time around, but it's meant kind of as a corrective to that article because they were like pissed off that like Lou Elizondo got the credit that really sort of belonged to in their minds, like the sort of people who were orbiting. Robert Bigelow, who I think we'll talk about, you know, more mm -hmm. deeply, and the Skinwalker Ranch, which I think has come yeah. up before. But yeah, and they were talking about how like a lot of this really started from their point of view with Harry Reid, and Harry Reid really like you know a Mormon, really like uh, being uh, aggressively because he even says like in the book, you know, we believe in other worlds, you know, we believe. He, in... he wrote the foreword to this book. Yeah, Harry yeah, um, yeah. And I think he makes a point like you know in the LDS Church, we believe in like other worlds and things like that and you know it's interesting, interesting that like so much of this revolves around like this ranch in utah like you know which has like a deep history like in the in the region and you know is often like basically always been owned mm -hmm. by lds families it's, it's interesting you know it's a, an intriguing sort of wrinkle and dimension of all this but anyway yeah like uh, he was you know a very big early booster of this and it's a, yeah he's like a democrat but he's like a nevada democrat it mm -hmm. kind Las of Vegas, yeah, yeah, Las yeah. Vegas Mormon Democrat, which yeah. is very it's kind of a like lot of tangled allegiances with him. Yeah, it's interesting how I don't know if this again, we've like talked about this framework and like its value and like how well it maps on to like political realities today and what its relationship is with just like, you know, our two political parties, Democrat and Republican in the United States. But, you know, I feel like almost like are UFOs like a cowboy issue like versus like a yankee <laughs> issue i feel like leslie kane though is very much like yankee um, oh she's absolutely a Yankee. Yeah. as is so, andrew mellon the former yeah. defense department official who is a member of the mellon banking dynasty family you know very very powerful and as we know has had like members of that family were very interested and i would say instrumental in the proliferation of lsd and the hippie counterculture like literally bankrolling it in the 60s mm -hmm. so it's like it ain't nothing new with the melons and then you have the canes who are like i mean leslie kane is not just a a cane her uncle was thomas kane the governor of New Jersey, who I think co-chaired the 9-11 Commission. So really great legacy of getting to the bottom of complicated, controversial topics, right, call it Like in yes. this family. Totally got to the bottom of 9-11. Yes. Totally, his niece is totally going to get to the bottom of whatever's happening with UFOs. But, you know, she's also a fish, like the venerable, the mm. Hamilton fish, uh, right. serious politician. Hamilton fish. And the fish family goes back to like hundreds of years, I think, of being uh, governors in New York and senators. I think they're old Dutch patroon, like old, old money. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like those New England families are hyper, hyper intermarried and interrelated. So she's probably related to all kinds of people on top of the fishes and everything else. So she's about, I remember my favorite line from like, it might've been the 2017, one of these profiles of the New York Times which is where she published that 2017 exposure thing about mm -hmm. Louis Elizondo. I think they said like, oh, well, she draws a modest family income or something like that. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay, like a modest family income. You know, so she's one of these people. I mean, Mellon is another example of like, yeah, she's like a professional journalist. Also, I'd almost forgotten this, but she started her career, where else? At KPFA and Pacific right. Radio. Yes. Yeah, well, that's an interesting thing about Leslie Kane, and I feel like this is a theme with this whole thing is that she 
is represented like in that sort of profile that we talked about of Leslie Kane like way back, you know, uh, in one of our earlier episodes, I think the I think the second one we did on this. But yeah, like she is sort of represented in that profile as being like this disinterested journalist who's like just trying to get to the facts about this. You know, she's like she's really ske- like a reluctant skeptic, you know, or like she's yeah. a, she's skeptical, but like reluctantly be- is like being pulled into belief when really she's like, like a diehard evangelist for this stuff. Like she's not like someone who is really like skeptical for like, she is, I think, concerned with optics and knows what looks like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, too much. But I don't think that means she doesn't like credit it. I mean, I still feel like even the way she presents herself, she might like uh, seem a bit too credulous. However, what she actually like, you know, thinks and what she's actually promoted, like kind of on, more alt media channels like mm-hmm. for instance her interest in uh like spirit manifestation and communicating with the dead and things like that you know is very much like a dissonant with the way that she's been presented actually like 100 percent. you know this there was another instance of this that i came across sort of updating myself on the ufo terrain for this episode this guy gary nolan who recently had a couple of articles about him like notably in vice you know um Mm -hmm. there is a a stanford professor gary nolan is analyzing anomalous materials from ufo crashes and you know the way that this presents him is basically very similar to the sort of maneuver that we saw with leslie kane where he comes off like you know it says gary nolan is professor of pathology at stanford university his research ranges from cancer to systems immunology dr nolan has also spent the last 10 years working with a number of individual analyzing material of individual i guess individuals uh, that's vice's typo analyzing materials from alleged unidentified aerial phenomena and it uh, goes on his robust mem- resume uh 300 research articles 40 u.s patents founding of eight biotech companies uh, honored as one of stanford's top uh, 25 investors makes him easily one of the most accomplished scientists publicly studying uaps i wonder like how much of that resume like is actually like but like he has 40 patents like eight biotech companies like okay that's a little bit like it's weird to found it's very prolific uh we'll get to that later when i talk about one of the interviews that we found of him uh, yeah well some interesting this is kind of the patents well this well yeah i I, maybe that's that's yeah but i think that this is like kind of the point that i want to make where he you know he says like uh in this article like I've always been an avid reader of science fiction, so it was natural at some point that when YouTube videos about UFOs began to make the rounds, I might watch a few. I noticed this guy at the time, Stephen Greer, had claimed that a little skeleton might be an alien. So this is, he asked, how long have you had an interest in UAPs, right? So this is what he says. I've been an avid reader of science fiction. You know, at some point I just saw YouTube videos about UFOs coming up. And I saw this guy, Stephen Greer, claimed a little skeleton might be an alien. I remember thinking, oh, I can prove or disprove that. And so I reached out to him. So he's positioning himself as like this debunker who just happened upon this information, right? Um, like it happened upon a video about this little alien skeleton that's Stephen Greer. And I, you know, I remember that skeleton, by the way. That yeah, was like yeah, 2013, yeah. You, 2014. You almost feel bad for Stephen Greer because he doesn't actually believe anything substantially different from these people, but they're always like using him as a punching bag, and they're always like yeah, this lunatic yeah. Stephen Greer. But anyway, so. <laughs> 
I mean, fuck Stephen Greer, like he's a grifter, but whatever. Um, yeah, yeah. I like uh, I remember thinking I can prove disprove that, so I reached out to him. I eventually showed that it wasn't an alien; it was human. We explained a fair amount about why it looked the way it did. It had a number of mutations in the skeletal genes that could potentially explain the biology. The UFO community didn't like me saying that, but you know, the truth is in the science, so I had no problem just stating the facts. We published a paper and ended up going worldwide. It was on the front page of just about every major newspaper. I don't know if that's true, but okay. What's more, like, the New York Times front page was alien skeleton disproven. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember that. I remember um, vaguely remember it getting debunked. Yeah, I like, mean, I'm sure it was. I'm sure that if it was proven to be an alien skeleton, we would have heard about it. But um, And I'm sure someone must have tested it. But anyway, so then this is what he says. That ended up bringing me to the attention of some people associated with the CIA and some aeronautics corporations. At the time, they had been investigating a number of cases of pilots who'd gotten close to the supposed UAPs and the fields generated by them, as was claimed by the people who showed up in my office unannounced one day. There was enough drama around the Atacama skeleton that I had basically decided to forswear all the continued involvement in this area. Okay, so he was like, I don't want to deal with this anymore. You know, this is damaging to me. Then these guys showed up and said, we need you to help with this because we want to do blood analysis. And everybody says you've got the best blood analysis instrumentation on the planet. They started showing the MRIs of some of these pilots and ground personnel and intelligence allergists who had been damaged. The MRIs were clear. You didn't even have to have an, uh, to be an MD to see there was a problem. Some of their brains were horribly, horribly damaged. And so that's what kind of got me involved. So, you know, I think he later on, like, talks about how he doesn't really, like, even work on brains, right? Like, it's not really his, like, expertise. But also, like, to me, if, like, the CIA, like, comes to your office and, you know, is saying, like, we want you to, like, analyze these pictures because, like, you know, you're, you had the best equipment, you know, after mm -hmm. you did this alien thing. Like, are you really going to just completely credit, like, everything that these people are saying and, like, representing to you is true? Like, you know, are you not going to exercise a little bit of skepticism? So that, like, immediately raised, like, That's a lot. something. Yeah. yeah. It, you know, I flag. just feel like it's kind of like if the CIA came here and was like, Khalid, like, you're the greatest gin expert, like, and we need you to look at, like, these pictures of gin <laughs> that we, like, took or something. Like, then I would yeah, be like, I'm yeah. not going to be like, wow, it's proven, you know. But, like, you know, also... That's actually kind of not a great example because according to the way he's presenting himself, right? Like he's actually this very skeptical guy. So he's not someone yeah, who yeah, would really... Yeah, you're a gin believer, but he's yeah, yeah, just yeah. like a Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a known gin believer, but he's just... In fact, right. he's a debunker, right? This is how he comes across in this Vice interview. But I happen to dig up like, you know, it's not like a secret or anything. You don't have to like go through his trash to find it out. But it's just like a little bit out of the way of like the mainstream outlets or the more popular outlets, you know? Like, it's just a little bit, like, more in the sort of UFO nitty-gritty. You gotta look to, like, see... Like, to, to get a different picture of Gary Nolan, who is apparently, like, a childhood abductee. Oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah, he, he talks about it in uh, a couple articles where he... Or, you know, a couple interviews where he says that he kind of got, like... Uh, I think he even got, like, God phone calls and things like that, right? Well, you, I think um, you wrote that on... Was it a New York Times profile from a few years ago that they did about Oh, about him? Bigelow. What, or, I think it was about... It? Maybe it was about Bigelow. Uh, yeah. I, I for, actually, no, wait, you're right. I think that was about Bigelow. See, I'm getting my God yeah, phone yeah, call yeah. recipients mixed up. He also got a God up. phone call, yeah. But Bigelow I, said, I Bigelow said yeah. something mysterious that makes it sound like he got a phone call, but he wouldn't yeah. go into it. <laughs> You know. Yes. Yeah. But okay. So young, wait. So right. he mentions getting this other gentleman mentions getting. Yeah. yeah. Gary Nolan got a God phone call. Well, he got an alien call. He was like contacted by aliens like when he was young and he was definitely like a childhood 
abductee. I think this might be like where he dis- like the same interview where he discusses uh, his pat like his uh, his patents. Yeah, that he did with Chrissy Newton at uh, Rebelliously Curious, where he talked about like his childhood gray encounters and how like you know his he both he and his brothers had uh, like experiences with uh, you know these these aliens oh, okay so, i think like, i did yeah. read this actually like they're kind of beings like outside of his window but his window was like elevated above the ground so it wouldn't have been like a normal sized person or they were floating or something like that yeah maybe i can even find uh like his quote written out somewhere um but yeah they definitely visited him and so like it's again like a lifelong interest it's not something that or you know he's actually seen et beings which is so different from like, oh, you know, I just w- am into science fiction like pretty much everybody. And once I again, we have a little thing, bit of And then a... the CIA got in touch with me. That's a very, mm-hmm. it's a totally different narrative from I have had contacts with alien beings like from childhood. 100%. 100 and it's like, it's such a pattern. Once you start to see the leading voices in this scene, that is something that pops up again and again. Like we just said with Leslie Kane, she, in her own way, though, I don't know if she's talked about as a young woman. I mean, she was always, she's much more into spiritual stuff than she generally lets on. In fact, I forget if we mentioned this on one of our more recent Q and A's, but Remember when somebody asked us, what's the Esalen of the East Coast? Mm-hmm. And we both had an answer for it. But I was like, oh, this weird kind of Buddhist place called the Omega Institute. Yeah. Well, it turns out like Leslie Kane has been associated with the Omega Institute. Oh, and I think wow, might have even been a co-founder of it wow. back in the day and got very into Buddhism, probably around her KPFA. I think she was a co-host of Flashpoints back in the day. That was her first thing after she graduated Bard. And so... She's had that kind of like spiritual new agey kind of thing going on, but she really plays it down and then also believes in ghosts, like has talked about having spiritualist seances and being touched by like ectoplasm ghosts. I forget which right. episode yeah, we read Omega that. The Omega Institute wasn't <laughs> Buddhist though, right? Because it was inspired by like the Inyati order of like, you know, sort of Sufism, one might say. <laughs> Um, Sorry, yeah, I forget what the it had a much more like in like a intense like culty sounding name associated with it in the past. But you might be right that it's not itself Buddhist, yeah, it was but the Leslie Omega Kane Institute was for holistic studies uh, originally. Yeah, but, but yeah, had, I was it, thinking like it was it Buddhist? But yeah, name. it was. But they're very like sort of you know perennialistic kind of in their in their doctrine. You know, they're very much like the Sufism without Islam type of approach. Um, yeah, yeah. So I guess she was, she described it, I guess she said in one of her profiles that uh, she was described as helping to found a Zen center in upstate New York, by which I guess she's referring to the Omega Institute. Wow. But the Omega Institute has like, I think they they probably had like the Dalai Lama come there. Like they, they probably have this like mishmash perennialist kind of thing uh, going on. So she's one that's kind of like, concealed the and she's also obsessed with ndes which is another huge thing that a lot of people in this scene are like weirdly also obsessed with yeah and i forgot that she was super into 
It's interesting. Yeah, she was super into Aang Sung Suu Kyi, right, as well. Like, she wrote that whole book, Burma's Revolution of the Spirit, yeah. right? Mm. Yeah, I totally forgot that element of her background, which is, you know, also not lining up super well with uh, her, I guess, vague connections to a form of Islam, one might say. That's um, true. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you really look at her three books, it's right there out in the open, like 1994, Burma's Revolution of the Spirit, The Struggle for Democratic Freedom and Dignity, 2010, UFOs, generals, pilots, and government officials go on the record with a foreword by John Podesta. That's in 2010. That's way before WikiLeaks, and we found out that John Podesta was like doing weird shit with Tom DeLong. Yeah. And before I think she really came out as like a reluctant skeptic who thinks there might be something there, but she's so serious that she's going to like do her journalistic homework. And then 2017, Surviving Death, a journalist investigates evidence for an afterlife. So you would think with that being her bibliography that this would all be kind of upfront and she would talk openly about the intersections between all these things, but that's not what she does. She's almost playing a character when she goes yeah. on. She's almost mm-hmm. playing a game of deception you could say and um yes. and, and so like yeah people are like holding their cards close to their chest and not necessarily talking about another person who i we i think in episode 50 something the first time we had jimmy fallon gong on mm-hmm. we talked a lot about jack sarfati who we know got the uh, mysterious god phone call when he was like 11 years old mm-hmm. from some like computerized voice that claimed to be an ET intelligence that said something like you're a gifted child, like you're going to go into a physics program and like we will contact you in 20 years or something. And a lot of interesting people in this space got that phone call uh, when they were kids, including other people like Philip K. Dick got one, right? Yeah, Daniel Sheehan, uh, the sort of lefty lawyer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you see that phenomenon again and again, even if it's not necessarily explicitly mentioned as being like the God phone, but it's, yeah. And it happened, it more or less happened to Gary Nolan too. I mean, we connected that explicitly with Whitley Strieber, who, you know, had had those early life experiences and throughout his life, you know, of seeing these beings uh, that were kind of like grooming him for something special in his, in his view. But uh, yeah, Gary Nolan says, yeah, you're right. He talks about the bedroom window, right? Well, it was at a house my parents had first bought after uh, we moved here to the States. It was basically little guys in the bedroom. And I remember calling out to my brother. I didn't understand how it could be like two or three of him and then faces in the window and things like that. I mean, other than just memories of them being in the room and being a little scared. It wasn't until actually almost 30 years later that I found out from my brother he had also seen things. At our second house, I was a paper boy and going between one house and another. Early in the morning, I saw something over my head. I mean, it was not like it was just far over my head. It was like 30 to 40 feet just at the top of the trees. I can't say it was exactly saucer-shaped because all I saw really were lights and a kind of vague outline against the sky because the lights were so bright, um, but it was i didn't know what it was i mean i saw it go over um it was silent i mean at best it could have been a balloon but i don't know any balloons traveling at tree height i was a graduate student here at stanford later on i was in a used bookstore and buying science fiction books i came across two books one was by john mack you know big ufo researcher guy one of the first like serious people to look into ufos and of the abduction experiences in particular and the other was by whitley streber I remember just seeing the cover and realizing that was a face that I had seen when I was a kid looking through the window or in the bedroom. The thing about the window, it was like six or seven feet off the ground. There was something very tall hovering. I remember just all the hair on my body stood on end when I saw and I dropped 
the book because it was like, how does this guy know what I saw? I knew nothing about the whole UFO arena. I mean, I read science fiction, but I never read about alien abductions or any of that kind of stuff. So, again, I don't know, like, how true, like, like, this idea of, like, I never was into UFOs until I saw Communion. But even then, he was a grad student at the time. So it's, like, much before he's kind of representing his entry to the UFO world. Definitely um, way before YouTube was around. Yeah. Right? I mean, um, so that right there is bizarre, right? Like, why would you not? And I get that maybe some people would be like, well, you know, when he's talking in the New York Times, like, he's trying to be serious so that people don't write him off as a crank. But, like, if he has published interviews elsewhere where he's openly talking about how, you know, he was, he had gray encounters as a child and then realized via seeing, like, a whip. Whitley Strieber book cover that that's what that was and that was back when he was like a young man and so this has clearly been something that's been sort of on his mind like for decades before he randomly saw a Stephen Greer thing with the skeleton and offered himself up as just like a totally neutral yeah. like I don't know I, I don't know if it's like a residual people just being so freaked out about not being taken seriously because that's how it used to be kind of in the UFO field. Yeah. Um, and they, they've sort of carried that on to today. But I think it's more like willfully sneaky and like deceptive than that. It's definitely willfully deceptive. Like maybe like, yeah, I think that's a fair point. Like that there is some sort of like protective instinct that like motivates being deceptive, but it's still like deceptive. And it conceals the fact that a lot of this like UFO hype is driven by a relatively small group or groups like, you know, with some sort of different factions or different interests within it, like or, you know, multiple groups like within sort of a larger subculture of like very self-interested people, you know, or like it, people who are very deeply invested in this topic, I should say. Right. They're not yeah. impartial or objective. You know, they're like UFO diehards, really, who have been evangelizing this. Like, and people take it at face value when it's presented to them through figures who are able to project authority, like, you know, Leslie Kane, like she's, you know, a, a serious journalist. So like when she mm -hmm. says this, but like, really, she's like a true believer, you know, she's like a diehard UFO person. And so are you know, all these people, yeah. like there isn't anyone really who is like, you know, because there's nothing to evaluate. So I guess how can you even say, but still yeah. like it's being driven by people who really really want it to like you know be realized you know to be a thing you know who she leslie kane reminds me a lot of a another like advocate who kind of acts like he's just above it all michael pollan mm -hmm. and psychedelics like that's another yes. parallel where i think he scratches the same itch and targets the same demo that leslie kane is targeting which is like yeah true. kind of upmarket like college educated more affluent like white liberals who read the New Yorker and the New York Times mm -hmm. and consider themselves serious and believe in science with a capital S yeah. and all of that stuff and like are a little bit skittish. I think Ezra Klein is almost like a perfect avatar of the type of person that Leslie Kane, in my view, is trying to psyop into taking the subject seriously, which yeah. is that's what I feel like is going on more than just she really is just trying to like make it serious. Like, like I, I think a lot of her tactics and the way she talks about it are geared towards that 
hoity-toity set, like people, you know, if you ran into some oh, yeah, people at the Hamptons, sure. like you'd be able to talk to them. It's kind of like a mold bug, like dark elf strategy where like the way that you shape <laughs> culture is by like corrupting the elves and getting the elves to like believe in like your reactionary beliefs she's like targeting the elves and trying to bring them over to like the ufo disclosure believer side yeah exactly um, and not and like make it sa- sanitize it enough that you can kind of talk about these things that ezra klein can you know do a podcast about it and i have to say yeah. like listening to that i've never it is a rare occasion uh this almost i i think never happens but like I've never wanted more for Ezra Klein to earn the shit out of somebody yeah. than like listening to him talk to Leslie it's K. True. Like every this time he was like, for no other reason than um, that, it makes you like agree with Ezra Klein. And like this is yeah. triggering my skepticism a little bit. I'm like, yeah, get him, get him, yeah, Ezra. Like exactly. you know, and usually I'm like, shut the fuck up, Ezra. Like stop trying to you know, like debunk everything. But in this case, like his you know t- his wonky technocrat kind of materialism like um i don't know i need to see more evidence of that like in his beltway thinking was just making it very hard for him to buy this new story in the debrief uh that leslie keen and ralph blumenthal published that is about this like new whistleblower and all the little details about like this guy coming out and saying that we have crashed alien vehicles and stuff yeah, kind of you like know, and, handled and stage managed by leslie kane and i and, think the and, and a beyond reproach whistleblower. story you know and like they took it to a bunch of different period like you know periodicals and different outlets but they were politico like, no. wapo so New they York had Times. to take it to the debrief which is like you know like it's just a ufo like dumping ground you know for your like rejected whistleblower yeah. Which I love that Ezra was like, you know, so you took it to the debrief, which was, you know, unlike the New York Times, like a less known quantity, which is fine. <laughs> you know, I can, I can tell that like he's just dripping with contempt for yeah. like, what the fuck is this stupid website? And I mean, I had to look into it. What is the debrief? Because a few people were kind of wondering, like, I, it sounds vaguely familiar, but I don't know if I've actually ever seen it before. And it is like this kind of curiously independent website that is kind of straddles the line between like a defense like an online defense publication and talking about like cutting edge darpa stuff and ufos they have their own like uap section on their site Um, it's very much dedicated to kind of ufo stuff but it kind of has i mean it's very natsec friendly very you can tell by reading it that it supports the troops and the patriots and the pentagon and and you know wants to publish relevant national security information but it also is very into this ufo thing so i mean i looked into it like does it have a parent company anything like that and like nope it's just the debrief llc registered in north carolina and i think there's a guy named what is it hanks micah hanks Hanks is like one of the driving forces behind it with a few other people but he's been writing like ufo kind of Type the UFO singularity uh, yeah, is one of from his books. 2012, I think. Yes, the complete guide to Maverick podcasting, another uh, book of his. Maybe we should read that. Yeah, um, the UFO singularity. Why are past unexplained phenomena changing our future? Where will transcending the bounds of current thinking lead? How near is the singularity? That's the title of the book. Okay. Uh, he's uh, yeah. said to be at the forefront of a new generation of ufologists uh while he wrote magic mysticism in the molecule altered states in the search for sentient intelligence in other Eh. worlds 
ghost rockets, mystery missiles, and phantom projectiles. Yeah, um, that was like what they used to call UFOs back in World War II when they would see they would yeah like because you know the nazis were shooting like v2 rockets and stuff so that's what people would assume they were like some kind of nazi weapon um i see yeah i see yeah i mean he's been on history channel the jeff rents program and now there's still a nazi others. weapon but you know uh, <laughs> in, in theory yeah just the, yeah the maybe in a, of them. Um, yeah. maybe in a different way but yeah. yeah so this guy i mean has kind of been in the game for a while but he's definitely striking a very like respectable not cranky kind of pose which I think Leslie Keen found enough to be to her liking. She says they they were willing to publish it faster than any of the bigger things. And yeah, we needed were to threats. get it out there like right away. There, oh, there were threats. Yeah, okay. Because they had a whistleblower. Right, named, right, right. Thirty six year old whistleblower. Another these millennial whistleblowers. They never stop. David Charles Grush, mm-hmm. a decorated former combat officer in Afghanistan, a veteran of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency and the National Reconnaissance Office. He was the Reconnaissance Office's representative to the Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon Task Force from 2019 to 2021. And then from 2021 to 2022, he was the NGA's co-lead for UAP analysis and representative to the task force. And this is the guy that like resigned his position earlier this year and filed a formal whistleblower complaint that basically we have these crashed alien ships. Um, Yeah. Aircraft of non-human origin. He says, we are not talking about prosaic origins or identities, referencing information he provided Congress and the current ICIG. The material includes intact and partially intact vehicles. In accordance with protocols, Grush provided the Defense Office of Pre-Publication and Security Review at the DOD with the information he intended to disclose to us. This is Keen and Blumenthal writing... His on-the-record statements were all, quote, cleared for open publication on April 4th and 6th, 2023, in documents provided to us. Grush's disclosures and those of non-public witnesses, under new protected provisions of the latest defense appropriations bill, signal a growing determination by some in the government to unravel a colossal enigma with national security implications that has bedeviled the military and tantalized the public going back to World War II and beyond. For many decades, the Air Force carried out a disinformation campaign to discredit reported sightings of unexplained objects. But now, with two public hearings and many classified briefings under its belt, Congress is pressing for answers. Wow. So, yeah, they're definitely not running a disinformation campaign now. Uh, Why did they clear it for release? Like, why? That was one of the most shocking things. And I guess uh, to Ezra's credit, he he openly scoffed at this in the podcast interview when she described the the pre-publication process. He's just like, um, in my experience, knowing national security reporters, the Pentagon is incredibly secretive and opaque about their, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Leslie Kane's answers are just like so unsatisfactory. It's clear (laughs) that she didn't actually do like the groundwork of an investigative journalist to like just check up on factual shit to like try to triangulate how bullshit this might be. And he's like, yeah, he's just bringing up all these little things. Like, first of all, she's like, well, all I can say that that's very interesting, Ezra. She does that thing where she condescendingly answers everything in a question when she's trying to psyop Mm -hmm. you. And so (laughs) she's like, wow, Ezra, that's so interesting. Well, I would have to think that the reason that they approved it is because 
they decided that it, it didn't violate any, you know, critical sources and methods that were classified. And so they were like, okay. it doesn't mean that they endorsed it, but maybe uh-huh. they were just like, huh, okay. And he's like, you can um, tell everyone erm, that we have alien erm. bodies. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> he's like, yeah, he's like his erm, like his erm meter is just going off. And he's like, um, like, wait, hold on. Like from everything I've ever seen with the Pentagon, like just because something doesn't directly compromise sources and methods is that that doesn't mean that the government's not going to classify it. Like yeah, they have an exactly. almost they ridiculously classif- expansive yeah. definition uh-huh. of what might compromise national security. Like anything could fucking hypothetically compromise national security. And that's like their, their default action is to be like, fuck no, you can't talk about this, especially something that's like earth shattering and would like completely See? change humanity forever. The crazier thing though, cause she's like, Hmm, interesting Ezra. Hmm. Interesting hmm. points. Like, and then, I think what she says is, she's like, well, we don't really know what the approval process was at the Pentagon, because that's kind of opaque. But what we do know is that he submitted it on like the night of like April 3rd, and then on the morning of April 4th, he got an approval to speak like publicly about it. <laughs> and so she's like, I don't know, maybe it just got passed through an office and a bureaucrat just stamped it without even looking at it. Or wow. they just thought, oh, this is like silly. E- even Ezra Klein was like, I don't know, like a part of me is thinking maybe this is like a reverse psychology psyop. <laughs> like Leslie Kidd, like instead of agreeing with them, like that's definitely a possible, you know, possibility. She's like, eh. Maybe, but I don't know. It just like it all feels like so genuine. Like this guy, you know. Like, you know what he, it is? It's people in the fucking like UFO world. What happened to the UFO like subculture? You know, because they used to be so like distrusting of like everyone in the government, and now like they've been taken over like invasion of the body snatchers by people who are just like blinkered by resumes. Like, because this guy's like, oh, he's a decorated officer or like whatever. You know, it's like they have all this experience. They have this, beyond like, appro- you know, they, all these generals. They have all these shiny medals. Like, how can I mm-hmm. not listen to them? Like, it's just like, what? Yeah, it's almost like the the medals on their uniforms are like the shining hypnotic lights on a UFO that like sucks <laughs> you in. and get, Like, yeah, it's just because like Seriously. this guy is like, you know, an actual like guy in the who was in the military and he, you know, fucking like I don't even know what his credentials are, honestly. But I know that he like actually killing did. a lot of people in. He's Afghanistan, an intelligence officer. Yeah, he killed. They love that. Even in like Skinwalkers uh, at the Pentagon, which is kind of like an anti Leslie Kane book or like an anti like MYT twenty seventeen UFO article book. They still constantly like every single time like to the point of like extreme like redundancy. They're just constantly like just belaboring how everyone has like military and combat experience like in the like wilds of Afghanistan. You know, it's just like all right. So I'm going to take a moment setting this one up because if you've not been following along until now, then where we are now is going to seem really strange. So on June 5th, an outlet called The Debrief published a story that that more or less broke the internet. In it, a decorated former combat officer and an intelligence officer named David Grush, who had worked on the government's unidentified aerial phenomena task force, 
said he had turned whistleblower and he had testified under oath to Congress that he has been told reliably and given evidence of secret government programs that have, over a long period of time, recovered and definitively analyzed crash materials, that we have this stuff and it is being kept from Congress, it is being hidden, and if it were just him, maybe you would dismiss it. But there were others in the intelligence community who had served around him, who were themselves very highly credentialed, who backed him up on this. So I wanted to dig into this story, both for what's solid in it and what makes me at least skeptical of it. And I also wanted to dig into some of the stories about governmental investigations and UFOs that preceded it, because there have been a bunch of these over the past couple of years. The biggest ones, including this one, were co-authored by Leslie Kane, a longtime journalist on this beat, who's published a number of them in the New York Times, my publication. Though, as I mentioned, this particular story was in the debrief. And so I asked her to join me on the show so I could get my questions and, and hopefully some of yours answered. And my hope is by the end of this, you have more of a sense of why I think it's reasonable to be very curious at this point about what is going on here, to have some real unanswered questions, but also to be pretty skeptical of some of Grush's claims, or, or at least get a sense of why I am. Leslie Kane, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So let's go back to the first piece that you co-authored in The Times back in 2017. Give me a bit of texture on how that story came about, but fundamentally what it was reporting. Sure. Well, the story came about because of a meeting I was invited to with some associates of a man named Luis Elizondo, who was the person who headed up a secret program at the Pentagon, which is what the story was about. And I had an introduction to him a couple of months earlier because he was resigning from his position as head of this program. So he wanted to try to carry on the work he had been doing outside. He was concerned that there were not enough resources being devoted to what he thought was a very important issue after all the years he had spent studying it. So that's why he left, and, and this meeting was really a turning point for me, Ezra, in my career as a journalist. I mean, I, I was just stunned by the fact that that program existed, by the fact that I was meeting the former head of the program and all the things that they showed me at that meeting which uh, basically showed the reality of the program and it showed Harry Reid's involvement with it. And we can talk more about that because that all led to the story. But I just wanted to share that it was a major moment for me to be invited into a meeting like that. So what was the program? It was a very small, basically unfunded program called the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. We call it ATIP. There was a, another program that was set up before this in the DIA. And this was kind of an offshoot of another program that closed down. And basically, it was just a small group of people within the Pentagon. And it was led by this man named Luis Elizondo, a former counterintelligence operative and a, a very highly cleared person who worked with a lot of, I mean, did a lot of other jobs while he was at the Pentagon. This was just something he kept going, even without a lot of funding, with a small group of people. And they were basically studying cases that were presented to them by, uh, a lot of them were from the Navy, cases that came through intelligence agencies, Air Force, anybody that was connected to the defense establishment. They were not taking cases from commercial pilots or police officers or anybody else. And nobody even knew about this program. Their focus was to try to understand the technology, basically. 
Lou Elizondo, the people who love Lou Elizondo too, love mentioning like when he regales people about like his combat stories in Afghanistan and like weird shit. Yeah. I mean, another all clue. Like fucking, you know. Yeah. Another clue is to maybe why they're like this. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And uh, in the debrief article that Leslie Kane wrote, this is just a brief description she gives of, uh, you know, another prime mover, Christopher Mellon. Uh, she writes that. Christopher Mellon, who spent nearly 20 years in the U.S. intelligence community and served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence, has worked with Congress for years on unidentified aerial phenomena. Quote, a number of well-placed current and former officials have shared detailed information with me regarding this alleged program, including insights into the history, governing documents, and the location where a craft was allegedly abandoned and recovered, Mellon said. However, it is a delicate matter getting this potentially explosive information into the right hands for validation. This is made harder by the fact that, rightly or wrongly, a number of potential sources do not trust the leadership of the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office established by Congress. You know, but, ne- but some insiders are now willing to take the risk of coming forward for the first time with knowledge of these recovery programs. So right there, I mean, Chris Mellon... It does get mentioned sometimes, but then I think a lot of people like forget it that he spent 20 years in the U.S. intelligence community and was a deputy assistant secretary of secretary of defense, which to some people is like, ooh, wow, how serious, like how amazing. But then I think like, what the fuck is a melon air doing like spooking it up for like 20 years inside of the Pentagon, like handling intelligence and then comes out with these very manufactured careful like hinty disclosure things that he's pretty much tied in with all of them i would say though i don't know i forget i mean maybe there is a yankee cowboy thing going on it's not so much that like ufos are a yankee or a cowboy thing but rather that they're being fought over there's like two factions in the ufo community that maybe represent roughly like melon and leslie kane and also the original bankroller and godfather of like MUFON and shit, lest we forget, is Lawrence Rockefeller, right? right. Uh-huh. Very powerful Yankee kind of dude. Mm-hmm. And then I think you have maybe kind of like the Nevada Southwest, like you have Bigelow, you have George Knapp, you have Coast to Coast AM, you have some of these more libertarian kind of people, maybe more of a Mormon kind of presence that might represent more of like a cowboy faction of this and maybe that's where you see the instrumentalization of the ufo phenomenon kind of take shape depending on who's pushing it well sometimes yeah, like I, it's interesting and i do dif- i think have different narratives and this is actually interesting so this is something that i think came through and i wish like we had attended more to this like earlier on because it's an interesting like uh wrinkle i guess to all of this is the whole uh like i feel like this divide that exists and this book skinwalkers of the pentagon I think kind of illuminates it a lot, and the, like the whole. Oh, by the way, by the way, is, isn't one of the co-writers on that George Knapp from yes, of like the Bob fame. Lazar, yeah. you know, coast to coast fame? So he, if he is, you know, maybe that that's one tick in the box for validating the Yankee Cowboy UFO war is that he's co-authoring yeah. this book, going the fuck in on Lou Elizondo and Leslie Kane who's like the arch Yankee proselytizer of all this. And yes. so I don't know. And George Knapp is like, really, he's been like a, a Skinwalker Ranch guy for a long time, like going out there. Like there's lots of like old, there's actually a, a, a book called Hunt for the Skinwalker that I think George Knapp wrote originally. I didn't read the book Hunt for the Skinwalker, but I read, I watched a documentary based on it. 
Um, and you can see like all of George Knapp's old footage that he did around Skinwalker Ranch, you know, during the time that was owned by Robert Bigelow. Yeah, it's by Comb A. Kelleher and George Knapp. Science confronts and explains at a remote ranch in Utah. And this is really, this book is kind of what launched like the whole like new Pentagon interest in UAPs or like whatever. Let me just read this part from uh, Humphrey Skinwalker because I think this is this is pretty, or sorry, not Humphrey Skinwalker, for Skinwalkers of the Pentagon, confusing of the titles. But that book actually does play a role in this because James Lekatsky and Jonathan Axelrod, which is not his real name, I think his uh, real name is Jay Shatton, uh, Jay Stratton, sorry, not Shatton. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but uh, it, that was sort of came out later on, but that's a pseudonym. So James Lekatsky and Jonathan Axelrod, a.k.a. Uh, Stratton, are two of the primary characters in this book and both had read Hunt for the Skinwalker by 2007. In turn, as described in detail in Chapter 5, the book was the major stimulus for uh, Lekatsky, contacting Bigelow in July 2007 and subsequently visiting the ranch. The rest, as they say, is history. So, like, the whole, like, government, like, initiative to investigate this stuff, the $22 million that was talked about in the MIT, wasn't actually to do with, like, the UAP uh, Tic Tac stuff per se. It was much more to do with investigating Skinwalker Ranch. Like, At the uh, behest of, like, Harry Reid, who was contacted by Bob Bigelow. Right. Yes. Like Harry Reid, like evangelized for it and like pursued it heavily, like within the government. Yeah. After uh, Lekaski reached out to Bigelow. So this is what they have to say about this in the book vis-a-vis -a, -vis a tip and like this whole MIT thing. So what they call their initiative is AAWSAP, which let me see if I can find out what AAWSAP uh, even stands for. Oh, OK. It's um. No, Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies is B-A-S-S. -S. What, what? Oh, yeah. Advanced Aerospace Weapons System Applications Program. Uh, Senator Stephen Inoue and Harry Reid uh, decided to allocate $22 million to get the program started. So, uh, uh, By the way, Ted Stevens, uh, if I recall correctly, died in a sus plane crash. Add that uh, to the list. Okay. Um, I'm pretty sure Ted Stevens did, yeah. A government proposal was put out, and Bob Bigelow's company secured the bid. Uh, this is Harry Reid talking. When I first reached out to my Senate colleagues on UAPs, I wanted to find out if there was anything to those sightings. New York Senator Daniel Patrick Monahan once said, you were entitled to your opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. Through uh, AWSAP, we discovered that there weren't tens uh, or hundreds of people who have credibly witnessed UAPs. There have been thousands blah, 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 you know, so then the New York Times published Glowing Auras and Black Money, the Pentagon's Mysterious UFO Program, and uh, the December 2017 stories and a tremendous amount of good, including prompting the U.S. Navy to create a formal system for pilots to report UAP sightings, you know, but uh, the article correctly identified the 22 million Senator Stevens and I secured went to Bigelow uh, Aerospace Advanced Space Studies, but it left the government's AAWSAP program completely out of the narrative. The story merged the original AAWSAP program with the Pentagon's Advanced Aerospace Threats Identification Program, ATIP, a program that also investigated UAPs, but in the context of the U.S. military. Skinwalkers of the Pentagon provides a full picture of the purview of and accomplishments achieved by the AAWSAP, OSAP program. So the $22 million um, went to hmm. Bigelow Aerospace, which I guess the New York Times did say, but it wasn't part of ATIP, it was part of AAWSAP. Um, which uh, crack investigative journalist Leslie Kane just sort of like missed. Yeah. I and guess her we're two MIT like handlers, I guess, missed as well. But uh -huh. yeah, and they they clarify uh, what OSAP was and wasn't. OSAP was conceived as a program to evaluate the threat potential of UAPs. 
uh, Bigelow Aerospace uh, Bass was an organization specifically created to execute the AAWSAP contract to evaluate the threat potential of UAPs. Throughout the book, OSAP Bass and OSAP Bass are used interchangeably to denote their close operational similarity. OSAP was not conceived to study predicted advances in aerospace technology except in relation to UAPs. From the beginning, OSAP was determined to cast as wide a net as possible to study all phenomena, this is important, all phenomena within the overall rubric of the UAP topic. Okay, like that seems like subtle point, but it's a significant one. That meant that if paranormal <laughs> phenomena were known to collocate with or overlap temporally with UAPs, then paranormal phenomena would also be studied by OSAP. The philosophy of OSAP was to study all phenomena observed in relation to UAPs. Since the publication of the December 2017 article in the New York Times, there has been a multi-year frenzy of speculation, misinformation, and confusion about the nature of the program. This book is written by the two program managers, Drs. James K. Lukatsky and Combe A. Kelleher, who oversaw the day-to-day -day operations of the OSAP BAS program and it is an attempt to correct the record and present scientific data, reinforcing the need to explore UAPs and related phenomena. George Knapp, who is arguably the premier journalistic authority in the world in this program, not Leslie Kane, no, it doesn't say that, but, you know, <laughs> contributed significantly to the book. OSAP BAS uh, was not a tip. The ATIP moniker arose from an unclassified nickname that was inserted into a letter that was sent from Senator Harry Reid to the Deputy Secretary of Defense requesting the creation of a special access program. This letter is described fully in Chapter 10. Yeah, they go into it. Because Lukaski, the DIA program manager, wished to pick the OSAP name for security reasons, ATIP was made up to substitute the name for Reid's letter to describe the OSAP. After OSAP has shut down, the ATIP designation was used to describe a completely separate small initiative that was underway at the Pentagon to study UAPs encountered by military personnel. ATIP involved a small group of people working on the UAP problem with direct knowledge of their superiors when their day jobs allowed them to. And like Elizondo's connection to, even to that is like spe specious. But anyway, so the New York Times article created an enormous confusion by mistakenly linking the 22 million funding to the small informal ATIP initiative. The 22 million was specifically targeted not only to ASWAP, sorry, targeted only to ASWAP. ATIP, as used by the New York Times, was not OSAP, and OSAP was not ATIP. The $22 million was contracted through the Defense Intelligence Agency into OSAP to evaluate the threat potential of UAPs. Not a dollar of that sum went to ATIP despite widespread statements over the last several years. So all that so, money basically went to Bigelow Aerospace Bass or whatever. I forget like how this long acronym. Talk about an, another PSYOP. Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies. Seems incredibly redundant. I don't know why it has to be like a million different. Uh, bass. Yeah, Bass. But boss. Like, yeah, they're just trying to have these long, uh, confusing acronyms here. Yeah, to just OSAP make it almost sounds like a companion, like what comes before ALMAO is like yeah, OSAP, exactly. like yeah. it's an alien. Like, yeah. It's weird, yeah. But okay, so ATIP basically, which was the crux of like what Leslie Kane reported in 2017, this book is saying that ATIP was like almost designed as like window dressing, like a limited hangout thing to mask the actual program that was going on, right? Yes. And Leslie Kane just like didn't, or well, not to mask or... it. It was well, yeah. Originally, it was to mask it. Originally, it was a fake name, and then that fake name, according to their narrative, it seems weird, but according to their narrative, that name later, and I think this much is true. I don't know like what the connection between the fake name and like the later program, but there was a smaller program that didn't receive that twenty-two million dollars that was talked about in twenty seventeen. 
that smaller program to investigate like these sort of UAP encounters that happened in the military, that didn't get the money. What did get the money was OSAP, which seems like it was almost entirely based on like investigating Skinwalker Ranch and like uh, yeah, yeah. the phenomenon there. Um, which which is actually that's the funny that's actually very funny because in this whole discourse around like we need people to take this seriously usually the very first thing that somebody like a leslie kane would kind of uh, lop off and she does do this is talk about like the weird entanglement between ufo encounters and other sort of yes. paranormal phenomena including like ghost poltergeist like which distortion. is so interesting because she is into that stuff. She's you know? into it, but then but, she doesn't associate any of that. But then it's like when you look at the actual program that the Pentagon was running, it was all about like basically like cryptids, um, like psychic powers, like telekinesis, yes. cattle mutilations. Like it's all about like the wildest shit ever that was going on allegedly at Skinwalker yes. Ranch. So it yeah, it's a bizarre kind of misdirection away from Ellick, if that's what they're investigating, then well, I don't see what the harm thing. is in saying it. Yeah, like you were saying before, I feel like I'm like in a tactical alliance with like the Erm uh, debunker faction on the UFO issue, because I also feel like it's like a lot of like manipulation and like psyopery, for lack of a better term, or, you know, it's kind of the perfect term uh, in this case. But like, I feel like it's interesting because the people who disbelieve it usually will say things like, you know, they would point to the OWSAP thing and be like, oh, you know, they were sp spending all this money to investigate, like, you know, orbs to investigate, you know, like wacky stuff, like, you know, uh, like dogmen or whatever. And that would be like, <laughs> that's sort of a strike against it in a way, you know, like uh, that they were sort of considering the broader aspect or the sort of that sort of different way to position the UFO phenomenon as part of like a larger like range of uh, experiences, you know, or uh, sort of numinous experiences, right? Um, yeah, or, yeah. you know, uh, like, I guess, you know, terrible. I don't know if numinous is a connotation of, of the terror, but, you know, these sort of paranormal, whatever you want to call it, experiences, right? I guess that, Where, that's a hard pill to swallow for, like, very, you know, scientific type people. Which is that, weird because I personally feel like, I know it is, and I think it's such, but it's a weird, I mean, interestingly, it, it's like a cognitive dissonance almost, which is like a term coined to describe, like, UFO cultists. But to me, the idea that like, you know, some kind of like that there's some reality to like the stories that exist from, you know, the earliest like recorded memory of human beings about like intelligences, like non-human intelligences that like share our world, like fairies or jinn mm -hmm. and things like, you mm -hmm. know, that there might be some reality to that is or at least like some phenomenological reality to that is much more plausible than like what I guess the Leslie Kane people either believe or like really want people to to believe like mm -hmm. about these like space aliens. Like again, as I said before, like I'm very anti ET hypothesis because to me that really doesn't make any sense. You know, it actually like, doesn't when you when you really think about and it. And they're I crashing probably... their spaceships. It's stupid. Like they're coming all the way here from like another planet. Like and Light then they years crash. Away. <laughs> like in what because there's lightning i feel like the hazards of interstellar travel are more significant than like atmospheric problems on earth they're like routinely navigated by like human pilots 
So I feel You're like right. Like it's got to be very like, complicated. The, but, to but the U.S. government has recovered between. like dozens of crashed UFOs from another planet. Like that's dumb. It, it really doesn't have a Sorry. lot of good explanatory. Like when yeah. I was a, a kid in the '90s, I thought it was cool, you know, watching the X Files. Like the idea of like flying saucers crashing, sure. But as time goes on, and then you're right. Like when and you, you know, consider, there might be events like that. But I mean, I think this goes to Messengers of Deception, which you were saying that you read a little bit earlier. Yeah, right? like I did, there yeah. might be like that there might be events where like strange things have fallen like to the sky or like strange things have crashed or whatever but there's like a trickster element to this to the phenomena which i think is one of the great insights of like some of the people who are now even in this sort of milieu and Mm -hmm. i feel like they've kind of not emphasized that element of it the trickster element of the phenomenon which was so prominent in like john keel's work and jack valet's early work like but that is like essential to me that like yeah there might be certain appearances but those mm-hmm. appearances can't always necessarily be trusted, you know? Absolutely, like, uh, absolutely. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's interesting. You brought up Messengers of Deception, and we've mentioned it before. I think you read it during our Mothman episode, and I, I hadn't gotten around to it, but I did read it last week, and it actually, I think it holds up quite well, especially with what we're dealing with today, even though, like you referred to, like Jacques Vallée is one of these people that has sort of like tumbled down the rabbit hole in subsequent decades. And the kind of shit he's promoting today is like, he's sort of gone native with like the UFO heads and (laughs) believes all kind of stuff. But I think he, he provided a very interesting way of looking at the whole phenomenon and like framing it. That was not, I don't know if like nobody had ever thought of it, but it, it certainly was not widely, uh, you know, considered before he wrote messages or deception, which I think came out in like the late 70s. But it was basically that, yeah, like one, you know, common thing of all of these UFO sightings and phenomena are they have like an effect on human consciousness and they have a deceptive trickster element to them that, you know, where it's not clear how much of this, he's not saying that it's like, it's a hallucination in their own heads and none of it's happening. He sort of accepts that something is happening, but the the way people describe these encounters is often like their reality their perception the feeling of where they are things like that are distorted in almost very like trippy like psychedelic yeah. like uh, or like interdimensional kind of ways where like time skips and you know all these other things which makes him think that whatever these devices are and he does concede that like they have a physicality to them um in terms of like there is something flying around yes but at the same time like he he really goes hard in that book i think maybe he was one of the first to really veer away from the idea that these are little green men from another planetary system that flew here through space he and then he points to i think quite valuably the long human tradition of like otherworldly interdimensional beings whether it's jinn or or like you know wood sprites or elves or leprechaun or you know go down the list like every human culture has some kind of notion or concept of like these sort of archetypal spirit beings that exist kind of on the fringes of our reality and are like mostly invisible but sometimes make themselves apparent and you know in subsequent decades people have then there was the whole ancient aliens thing which like really Mm -hmm. tried to literal but that it's actually funny because that also takes the really physicalist 
yeah. like materialist view it's of basically ETs. Like, yeah, all those flew things here. have been ETs rather than ETs are those things, you know, like, yeah, mm -hmm. like they are from another planet and like people have been seeing these UFOs and describing them. Yeah, like Anubis is like really like a gray or something, but for some, yeah, even it doesn't the really Soviet make much theories sense. of Phaeton, right? Yeah. Like, why does every religious building yeah, look yeah. like we, a like rocket? Yeah, <laughs> we talked about. I think in our very first UFO episode, we talked about Passport to Magonia. At one point, we talked about his book Passport to Magonia, which mm -hmm. I always remember yeah. the cover of that, where it's like a little gray and he has like a bunch of different masks, like of you know mm -hmm. another ET, like the devil, and like you know uh, sort of creepy like woman no yeah i definitely think that that is i think that there's a lot of holes you could poke in the idea that it's like you know beings from an, and yeah like again there is a reality to it but it kind of becomes an ontological problem of like what constitutes reality like reality is in some like our perceptions and reality like are very intimately tied to each other you know, and this like phenomenon does in some way interface like with our perceptions and it does in some way like tra transform the sort of ordinary or habitual rules of of those perceptions uh, yeah. and manipulate them in some way, even though, yeah, like there is a mm. there's a reality to it. So there's sort of a, a phenomenological and like a psychical component to it. But there is another component. But I don't think that necessarily means that. And again, like, you know, do they come from space, like, in some way? Like, I don't know, like, is, like, you know, maybe space, you could think of space as being, like, another dimension in some way. I don't know. And I think that's kind of, like, uh, how it's been been thought about in, in some senses. But, I, you know, I think that it's much more plausible to think, like, outside the kind of box of, like, these are sort of intelligent creatures that you know, in many ways represented, like, have four arms. Oh, sorry, not four arms. They have, like, four fingers or five fingers, uh, two arms, two legs, two eyes, a, a nose, humanoids. a mouth. Yeah. So then it's kind of like they're, you know, as we talked about before, like, they're our gods. They must be, right? Because what are the odds that, like, on some totally other planet? Think about all the life that exists on Earth, you know? Like, you have, like, uh, yeah. these, like, sea slugs, like, down in the vents where the Titanic submarine got, like, imploded, you know? You have all this incredible diversity of life. What... You know, I mean, I guess you could say that they were, you know, maybe it's an intelligent design issue, but a lot of these people don't really like that's sort of the what's bracketed off in all of this this talk where, you know, we don't want to really get into that. So we have to deal with the kind of this, this, this random chance that like beings that look so much like us, like evolved independently on like Zeta Reticuli or something. Mm -hmm. And then just like we have our own space program to explore the universe, they did the same thing as us. It's like, I feel like really, that is actually very narrow-minded and like, you know. But. Yeah, like having it, having it happen at the same time is really kind of an extra cherry on top of like, not to invoke Occam's razor, but it's like, it complicates it in the sense of like, the time span of life on human earth is so long and we've existed for such a brief blip that like, even if there was another planet, and there totally could be, that has, uh, maybe it has a similar, you know, type of star and similar distance and it's it's enough of the same that like humanoids you know uh grow up and become intelligent yeah, on it like would that happen the same time like as us, us. They have the same just as just as we achieve space travel they also are still around to come yes. visit us but like they haven't really visited us 
uh, until like the end of World War Two, yeah, when rocketry was developed. Exactly, like, but okay, then like, what do you make like, of all like before that? Like, you know, there's so many parallels. And Jacques Vallée, to his credit, like did a great job of like describing this. How like even you know with fairy lore, like the parallels mm. between that and like the abduction lore are so robust and like so unignorable. Right. And this is like something that I think, you know, like mm -hmm. both his and Keel's like insights have been like sort of digested by like the paranormal community in some way. But yeah, it's weird that like there's this it's kind of like cordoned off and uh, bracketed away, like in this sort of mainstream discourse of UFOs, because the idea of like these spacemen is like more palatable. But like what about, you know, even before before there was a common idea of graves after Betty and Barney Hill, people would see all sorts of aliens. People still see all sorts of aliens. You know, how many different aliens are being visited by? You know, like, well, like, and a lot of them so look like humans, only, only right? Some of these oh. are true, and it's only, yeah, there must be some kind of either like assumption of a certain form or the projection. I think both, both really, you know, yeah, either the phenomenon conforms itself to like our expectations, or like, and I think that it's really the answer is really both that our expectations project themselves, right? Like, onto the phenomenon that or the experience or whatever it is you know so like yeah when you read about like flying uh, chariots in the old testament you know it's like okay like yeah it's neither or the like, airship you know, of the 1890s it's not it's neither all in people's heads or not all in people's heads this kind of like body spirit distinction i don't know if like hold up yeah. in respect but yeah like it i don't know i just feel like there's all sorts of holes you could poke in it's like a million you know well it's i think like the not, really doesn't hold up yeah like the really critical like contribution of jack fillet's messengers of deception that is really worth keeping in mind is like regardless of where this phenomenon or force comes from like whether it's secret nazi ufos or interdimensional light beings or ets from another planet the way that they behave historically, because now we have like decades and decades of sightings, at least, I mean, not even including older folklore kind of stuff, but even if we just take like post-World War II, right, we have so many sightings and we've been able to monitor their behavior. And I think we can unambiguously say that the behavior of these things are like uniformly sus and like deceptive. Like that's how yeah. they, you know what I mean? Like they don't land and make themselves known. They also sometimes like, show themselves and so that people can see them and then they disappear again like they're fucking with us like whatever this thing is it's kind of fucking with us you know yes. and so i think that that's important to me as like to keep at the top of mind especially when you see people start to get like new agey and metatron about it and like oh they're gonna land and like it will unite us and blah 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 yeah. or for that matter the reagan thing of like we'll all unite and fight the aliens like <laughs> Like either way, like they're they're playing mind games with us. Like well, they are messengers of deception. Yes, yeah, certainly it, it does have a trickster element to it, and I also think that there is a trickster element to like the discourse around it, like in the mass media, like especially like in the United States recently, because again, like the whole like sort of uh, for lack of a better word, spiritual or numinous or uh, paranormal or whatever aspect of it, the aspect of it that has to do with like ontological questions, you know, and isn't just like, uh, oh, well, obviously there's another NASA out there on another planet where there's like, you know, beings just like us that are like coming here. The It's inevitable that if like, you know, these are greys and they're behaving just like us, like I feel that in sort of not addressing it 
you kind of there kind of opens up like a vacuum where the natural conclusion fills in, which is like a Raelian conclusion, pretty much, mm-hmm. which is that yeah. like the there are gods like that. Yeah. There's no way that they could look like us unless they. And I think that even what's his name? Gary Nolan said that he believes in like panspermia, that like these aliens seeded the earth and that like they are our gods, you know, um, which is sus to me <laughs> um, and is basically yeah, yeah. like, you know, the makings of you know, a UFO religion or, you know, the kind of thing that it, the kind of parent, like a, a validation of the kind of paranoia that gave rise to the, the blue beam thing, you know, like it is. Yeah. Yeah. Is um, he Anunnaki pilled? Like in the sense that he thinks the Anunnaki, like think uh, genetically up, engineered homo sapiens. I don't think he specifically brought up any kind of, um, like, uh, I need to find this article again. I think I might have copied and pasted it in here, like, last time. Um, let me see. Um, yeah, this guy went He's on Tucker, very... by the way. And, like, the way that he, again, it was similar. Like, the way he presented himself on Tucker was like, I'm just this guy, you know, and here I am. And I just, you know, happened to um, get this call from the CIA. And Tucker's like, wow, you're kidding me like, like <laughs> me you, too yeah yeah no. exactly yeah well i i i wasn't hired because i'm too based but yeah. um <laughs> you got that contra yeah phone call. exactly um, um we're both assets. or his dad That's just awesome. walked down the yeah. hall and said son want a job <laughs> like, yeah um, um but, but yeah. yeah he said something about panspermia yeah dr nolan stated in another interview with a event horizon that life may have started elsewhere and came here according to some models he gives examples of atoms of elements present here that actually originated from explosions of other stars slash meteorites, etc. He says that life in the universe may be based on DNA if the theory of panspermia is correct. So I guess he's very interested in DNA and genes. Uh, yeah, because we found that one interview with on some YouTube show where I think it's like Gary Nolan gets uh, political about UFOs, where he is constantly talking about like CRISPR and like gene editing and like throws out some hypotheticals about how like if people with only blue eyes like bred for a hundred thousand years they would constitute a new race and that he keeps saying like like and i'm not a eugenicist okay <laughs> like, like i know people are gonna hate this and they're gonna say i'm a eugenicist but i'm totally not but then he's like a, kind of obsessed with it so um, <laughs> i don't know yeah 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 it's a little bit sketchy Right. Then what happens when we start getting into like the architecture of the brain later on, like we get into CRISPRing and other things in the future? Are we going to start looking at then potentially enlarging these areas and then creating people literally like almost a super race in its own way, being able to remote do you and do these things? You know, I, I know we should focus on probably the people that are obviously that that need these areas repaired of their brain or, you know, and, and focusing on certain things like that. But are we going to get into a really, really sticky area where we're looking at CRISPRing, CRISPRing and genetics in the future? Have you heard well, of anything of that? I mean, I mean, look, the way that it always works is whether, I mean, I'll, I'll use the worst possible wording of this is we always use the people with damage and who need clinical help as the path to discover what is uh, what we can ethically do to a human body right right that's where you you say okay can I try out a new drug for cancer that I don't really know is going to work 
I can use it in a compassionate use case when the person has stage four and they're close to an end. I can try this. I can use a trial drug without a full test. And so, but you can back off a little bit uh, to people who aren't necessarily in dire need, but we, that's always where the ethics are trialed out to make sure that we're doing the right thing. But once you pass that mark, then it starts to become easier to turn and say, okay, well now I want to use this to make me better, right? That it's, it's now I'm, I'm making a choice for this interaction. Cosmetic therapy is an exact example of this. So the, the short answer is yes, we will start doing CRISPR, but on people, but only when the ethicists have decided and religion and politics and policy have decided that it is worth the risk first for individuals who are at great need. So it'll be used for something like thalassemias or blood disorders or uh, things. I mean, I, I, I made the first retroviruses, the, the, the rapid retroviral system, I was involved in the creation of that, is used in all genetic therapy around the world using retroviruses, the 293-based system. It was my idea, which actually came in a download. Um, wow. And, um, and uh, I made a lot of money on that. I get a check every year. Uh, and um, so people are doing it, but it began with, with engineering things like T-cells for CAR-T therapy or other kinds of cell types. Uh, so, but people have not done it for benefit. There was the Chinese individual who tried to use it on the baby for uh, giving the baby resistance to HIV. I mean, that was that was beyond unethical, right? Uh, to to do because you know we don't necessarily know uh, what the consequences of that would have been. Um, so, it, so it's, it's going to come, but I don't think it's going to come in the next five years. But what will come in between now and then are things like transcranial stimulation, right? Or, you know, Musk's neural implants that he's making. I mean, he didn't think that idea up. That idea has been in, in science fiction for a long time. Um, but it, it's been in science fiction for a long time because people think it would be we will be capable of doing it one day. And it's amazing how, like, I don't want to, like, completely sound the alarm of, like, the blue beam thing, you know? And I think, you know, we use the term loosely. We're not, like, endorsing that guy, like, Sergei Monast's, like, blue beam theory, which is, like, wacky. Yeah. And uh, But I think that that is something that bubbles up from sort of a, a naive observation of certain trends and it is to me amazing how much people have accepted and like gone in on with no evidence at all. None. Yeah. Just like the the word of like, quote unquote, trustworthy people who a lot of them, especially like, you know, we've been saying before, like this whole idea of like, oh, you know, there's this rising thing on the right wing where they're skeptical of the CIA. Like, what the hell? Like, you know, why is like their glorious leader, Tucker? Like going all in on this when like, all he has is the word of like people in the intelligence community, I guess. No, it's true. You know, I don't know. Yeah. And if you 
And if you look back at the history of like the whole UFO disclosure movement going back decades, like there truly ain't nothing new because like this has been happening. And some people have pointed this out. Like if you're an old head and you've paid attention to this stuff a long time, yeah. even if you just paid attention the last like 10 years, yeah. you've seen this like this Any hype machine. Now, yeah, right. It's about that goes to in cycles. Yeah. And every few years, there's like a government whistleblower, and they don't have direct evidence, but they've, you know, been some Mr. X told them in a park yeah. in Washington that he's seen an alien body, and he believes him, and we believe this guy. So, therefore, we're going to say it, and then there never ends up being, and then the government kind of like everyone soy faces when the government's like, we will assemble like a blue ribbon committee that will say something in five yeah. years. I was like, Oh my mm-hmm. God, like it's happening. And you know, and it's like, and then nothing really comes out about it. I mean, we have gotten a little bit of shit, like grainy air force, like gimbal UFO videos. videos. Yeah. Which, okay. Yeah. Like that's kind of, but now everyone has cell phones and shit. And so there's like tons of UFO sightings and, HD video that aren't like made black and white or thermal or whatever sort of better quality videos of like weird UFO shit. Uh, there's mm-hmm. definitely plenty of people that have like seen them. So that's almost like, sure. Why not release a video? Like that doesn't really change anything. You'd need to see like a fucking picture of a flying saucer in a hangar somewhere or something like that, or like a dead alien body. But then you know, we get back to like it's a the similar like Bigfoot of, issue of like where is Bigfoot's bones? Where is Bigfoot's body? Exactly. You know, it can't exactly. be like a real ape. It's got to be a gin. It's got to be well. It's got to be inter interdimensional or fanta- phantasmagorical or something like that. And I think you know, I think for like the Ezra Kleins of the world that have their you know their skeptic meters going off the charts, I think like the physical ET hypothesis is easier for them because they can kind of wrap their head around the fact that like we can fly through space that yeah. if you kind of even though there's like a critical problem of it's like incredibly like epistemically provincial and narcissistic it, you know it's kind of like we we're talking about our, our dolphin episode where like human beings can't even process like the intelligence of dolphins you know because it's now like we're paying the price hours <laughs> yeah exactly um yeah we're now we failed to understand the orcas the and... cetacean reckoning but we can't even like apprehend that or like recognize that as being like intelligence, you know? So to think that like, and that just is like in our own oceans, they're mammals just like us. And like, we can't really like relate to that. But like the idea that like, Oh, on another planet with like a totally different size, different gravity, you know, I don't know, maybe it's an M class planet. Like, where is, you know, like, it's just like, kind of like, all right. And they come here in secret don't reveal themselves like well kind of in secret and then they show themselves in weird ways to, yeah like, where they make have the... glowing ships yeah like but they don't really it's like definitely not like but, but yeah but somehow like it's just kind of like their own sp- and they're doing experiments on us just like we do experiments on our own populations uh, you know yeah, yeah i like, mean a lot of projection maybe into I, how these people behave definitely projection at play but yeah it, it rests on a lot of assumptions like even just the barrier of light speed travel okay then like they can kind of wrap their head around like well like maybe it's hypothetically possible that you could harness some device that goes faster than the speed of light we certainly as fuck don't know how to do it and so like that that's a huge like scientific stumbling block for the like very they just flew here but it's still there's less known about things like i don't know interdimensional wormholes or, or like the idea like science has yet to sort of verify like gin like it's more of a hot potato to 
in terms of losing your seriousness to go near that stuff. So I think they just shut off all that. That's like old superstition. That's old yes. religious crap. But like we know that like Werner von Braun built rockets and they fly to space. So therefore, like if the aliens yeah. came here, they must have gotten here through rockets, even though it seems really that's like a Rube Goldberg ass way and well, probably yeah. impossible. I mean, it's a like we can't even get a rocket to go that if like science can't measure something. It's similar to like you know the MK Ultra interest in like psionic phenomena and like you know the if you try to instrumentalize these things for like uh, tactical like war purposes, like they usually like don't work or they can't you know they resist the sort of techniques of measurement that are the benchmark of, like, scientific understanding conditionally. I mean, sometimes science, like, when it comes to the quantum stuff, like, you know, they'll be they'll be comfortable with this kind of thing as well, but only when it, when it serves them, uh, only when they can mm -hmm. uh, evangelize their, like, uh, fundamental randomness of the universe. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, like, so there are certain things that might be outside the purview or, like, not measurable by what it constitutes the rubric for, like, truth, the epistemic rubric of... of contemporary modern for sure. Western science you know so like there's a tendency to ignore that which you scientifically explain like i don't think that we ever are yeah. going to scientifically prove it ex except through like islamic sciences uh that's the only <laughs> way that we, you know the uh, the religious sciences uh, the i'm not so I, i'm but, not so down on it maybe but i think maybe we will uh you know like we figured out a lot of things that we had no idea about. Well, I guess you know, we have found invisible forces like radiation, things like that. Yeah. So uh, yeah. maybe, but so they do say that like if you you know as soon as you look away from the gin with the cone of the eye, like it will slip away. You know they're known as being sort of ephemeral and uh, creatures that are they're difficult to measure, resist measurement. I think, but either way, like you know the, it if it doesn't fit within that paradigm, it's not like thinkable or possible and or just like not worth discussing. So I feel like they that's, can only you know, think like about it in the secret machines much. kind of way. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, experimental aircraft, which if, and how if can it we is use experiment, this to like fight a war or like, what is the, the you know, well, the defense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the irony of it is that if they are physical aircraft in some way, like they really are physical, then for me, it's far more likely that it's built by humans and operated by humans using some kind of secret, technology that that's has, certainly true of like some of what is like a like constitutes ufo sightings some of what makes up like the reported ufo sightings that people have is definitely experimental planes like no, the for stealth sure but i guess the question is how sightings. but like the the you know the yeah. the stealth bomber doesn't like stop in midair and then go like no and true. then like yeah, disappear it defy or, like the laws fly of into the ocean know them. yeah that's true yeah so i'm not saying that that explains it although i do think that some of it certainly but uh, but, but if that were idea, the case, yeah. like I would, I would put the odds on because everything about them acts like shady humans, like doing kind of weird experiments on, like fucking with people and like trying things out. Everything about it is giving human rather than ET. But that I'm not necessarily like sold on that versus a kind of more liminal hypothesis well i think there is something like very human about it and like our being humans and like our humans concerns certainly like affect how it manifests and i think yeah it's much closer to it's yeah certainly there's it's undeniable like the way that it manifests is like very human for sure and i'm not saying that i discount like all the sort of um the hypothesis like in the in the mind controllers the idea that like some abduction experiences are like uh 
you know, U.S. government or uh, other government like experiments, you know, where people are abducted or like psyop into believing that they were aliens and that there's some kind of other experimental, uh, you know, agenda that they have that they're pursuing like through underneath this like screen. But I also think that there is some like, again, I think that the um, the historical evidence does speak to like some reality for this phenomenon. I don't think that's the case universally, although I don't discount the possibility that it has happened. And I, but I do think that there's no way if you just go by like what all these people believe about UFOs, what John Mack believed, like about what their capabilities are, how would, if they want to be hidden, which it seems like they do, or at least conditionally hidden, they certainly don't want us to have an alien body. So how on earth would we hold on to an alien body if the aliens didn't want us to have it? Right? There's no alien body or an alien ship. I guess you could say that. Like, freeze everybody, abduct them all, wipe their memories, beam them back, and recover the ship and take it back to space, right? If we're talking about beings that can manipulate space-time, which is, like, one leading hypothesis for how they and would Yeah, of course, you know, why they crash in the first place? But if they did, through some, like, I don't know, weird thing, they could definitely get that ship back. <laughs> they wouldn't have to, like, you know, make a deal with Ike Eisenhower or whatever. I don't know. I guess the only explanation would be that they wanted, like, you know, the U.S. Yeah. Air Force to have a body for some reason to, yes. you know, but a then gin, that gets into the question pact. of, like, um, yeah, that, that's shady. Like, why are you doing this? They to make a gin pact like, under false pretenses. Yeah, exactly. Like, only interfacing with, like, the American Pentagon and, like, not, you know, and staying hidden from the rest of the world. That's some sus uh, imperialist shit. I don't like yes. it. Yes. I don't like but, it at all. And then not saving the Soviet Union? What the fuck? Like, uh, <laughs> um, like yeah, they're clearly they picked a they picked a side. They clearly support. Well, you know, they um, oh they abducted Gorbachev. Remember? Oh no, I don't. Didn't remember Stephen Greer that. say that? Maybe. Yeah. Like somebody abducted Gorbachev and told him about like reptoids or something. Like, oh my god. I and what that was. yeah, well, there was also the alien that like kind of pseudo quoted Ben Franklin. So they clearly definitely believe in like the principles of the Constitution and everything, um, you know, and- in Jack Valet's book, actually, he because he goes around and does like a tour of the country of all these different UFO groups in the 70s. And he, yeah. you know, he, he says that he runs into groups that are like much more kind of left wing hippie ish and then ones that are very right wing. And uh, I think multiple of the more like John Bircher type UFO people were like, no, like these, these aliens absolutely believe in like the American system. Like, <laughs> they, I, I've received messages oh, that that's great. like they love America and like they hate communism and like <laughs> communism has negative vibrations and yeah. all this other kind of stuff. So, I mean, you can really project kind of what you want the sort of yeah. uh, ET to say and, kind of fit it into that but yeah but even like leaving b- aside you know maybe like an alien did say that like i don't know maybe some gin did say that to uh you know a two-star general i don't know but actually even, wait can i can i read can i read okay, the uh, yeah, this go is ahead, the section ahead, the it, space it, people yeah. protect america this is okay. from one guy who said who told jacques valet maybe russia would start to throw some missiles at us from cuba over there which they do have and castro got a little out of hand well they might step in they told us they would so you might say that our first line of defense is the saucer people. That's the purpose of our organization, <laughs> to protect, first of all, the United States of America, because we are all substantially United States citizens, and I don't believe in communism or anything of this nature. But I will say this, whatever threatens this country, I am against, and I'll fight for it. And the saucer people have indicated absolutely that the Constitution of the United States 
the Magna Carta of England, and all the free instruments for the freeing of man from slavery <laughs> and from oppression which came from the governments were sparked by the saucer people, invisibly, wow. but absolutely wow. by them. No. And they can prove that it is. Yeah, well, I think this group was trying to run... Stephen Greer's they, uh, uh, right? A New World, if you can take it, uh, you know, following... 1776 the, will yeah. commence again when the saucer yeah, people it will arrive. Commence. Um, yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely wow. will. Well, George so th- Washington these people, did have that alleged vision, didn't he? Maybe. I think it's an apocryphal uh, story. I don't think that it's actually like there's any historical truth to it. But George Washington's vision to work of fiction published in 1861. So it's not true. But I remember seeing this like being represented as true in some UFO literature where um, this afternoon as I was sitting at this table engaged in preparing a dispatch. This is George Washington speaking, I guess. Something seemed to disturb me. Looking up, I beheld standing opposite me a singularly beautiful female. So astonished was I, for I had given strict orders not to be disturbed, that it was some moments before I found the language to inquire the cause of her presence. A second, third, and even fourth time I did repeat my question, but received no answer from my mysterious visitor except the slight raising of her eyes. By this time I felt a strange sensation spreading through me. I would have risen, but the riveted gaze of the being before me rendered volition impossible. I essayed once more to address her, but my tongue became useless, as though I had become paralyzed." A new influence, mysterious, potent, irresistible, took possession of me. All I could do was gaze steadily, vacantly at my unknown visitor. Gradually, the surrounding atmosphere seemed as if it had become filled with sensations and luminous. Everything about me seemed to rarefy, the mysterious visitor herself becoming more airy and yet more distinct to my sight than before. I now began to feel as one dying, or rather to experience the sensations which I have sometimes imagined accompany dissolution. I did not think, did not reason, I did not move. All were alike impossible. I was only conscious of gazing fixedly, vacantly at my companion. Presently, I heard a voice saying, Son of the Republic, look and learn. While at the same time, my visitor extended her arm eastwardly. I now beheld a heavy white vapor at some distance rising fold upon fold. This gradually dissipated, and I looked upon a stranger scene. Before me lay spread out in one vast plain all the countries of the world. He was in space. Europe, Asia, Africa, and America. I saw rolling and tossing between Europe and America the billows of the Atlantic, and between Asia and America lay the Pacific. Son of the Republic, said the same mysterious voice as me. Look and learn. At that moment, I beheld a dark, shadowy being like an angel standing or rather floating in midair between Europe and America. Dripping water out of the ocean in the hollow of each hand, he sprinkled some upon America with his right hand, while with his left hand he cast some upon Europe. Immediately a cloud raised from these countries and joined in mid-ocean. For a while it remained stationary and then moved slowly westward until it enveloped America in its murky folds. Sharp flashes of lightning uh, gleamed through at intervals, and I heard the smothered groans and cries of the American people. A second time, the angel dripped water from the ocean and sprinkled it out as before. The dark cloud was then drawn back to the ocean and whose heaving billows uh, sank in from view. A third time, I heard the mysterious voice saying, Son of the Republic, look and learn. I cast my eyes upon America and beheld villages and towns and cities springing up one after another until the whole land from the Atlantic to the Pacific was dotted with them. Again, I heard the mysterious voice say, Son of the Republic, the end of the century cometh, look and learn. At this, the dark, shadowy angel turned his face southward, and from Africa I saw an ill-omened specter approach our land. It footed slowly over every town and city of the latter. The inhabitants presently set themselves in battle array against each other. As I continued looking, I saw a bright angel, on whose brow rested a crown of light, on which was traced the word Union, bearing the American flag which he placed between the divided nation, and said, Remember ye are brethren. Instantly, the inhabitants, casting from them their weapons, became friends once more and united around the national standard. So this 
goes on a little bit. This is George but, Washington talking. Right? Well, it's not really. It's like later someone made this up saying George Washington experienced <laughs> this, you know, but I do think Some it's relevant because you can obviously. see you can see how this language of like think of how that was described. Even though this is like explicitly fictional, that language emerges from like accounts of mystical experiences or you know uh, sort of encounter like real yeah real visions well it is it parallels very very unambiguously like the language of ufo encounters that we're familiar with now right exactly and that same language you know that isn't just from fiction that is the language you know that's how you would describe a mystical vision that you sincerely had that's what that fictional story is based on it's like how an angel would talk to you basically yeah 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 exactly Um, official and authoritative and mysterious like yes yes or yeah or a demon uh, or a demon Uh, well yeah uh origin yeah which uh yeah do certainly have some similarities right uh there's definitely some ambiguity between the two especially like in the christian tradition where i guess demons just are angels in islam we don't really believe in fallen angels uh but you know in christianity basically they don't make a distinction between them it's just the demon is just a bad angel but what about iblis uh iblis is a jinn not an angel oh oh what about shaitan i thought shaitan is a police well al oh, okay, okay. is that's Iblis, what i thought so yeah okay interesting um um yeah he was well, he he's of the jinn but he was well there are some people who like read him as being an angel because he was supposed to be included in the command to bow to adam but the the quran mm-hmm. does explicitly say that he was of the jinn and he says you made me a fire i was created right? before adam yeah, and this exactly. guy's created from dirt yeah exactly yeah. so that's yeah so angels aren't created from from smokeless fire, right? Um, I see. Yeah. So he was a jinn, but he was like the most like pious like lover of Allah like before, you know. So he believed that he should have like that special favor. Basically, he thought that he should be in this position, not Adam, but the angels, you know, wouldn't like be in that position, right? Uh, so that's kind of he yeah. was competing with Adam, right? But he wanted um, Allah to raise him up, uh, but exactly. he raised up Adam um, instead, which yes. Was, yeah, so he blocked him. Um, yes. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, so either an encounter with the jinn or an encounter with the angel. I mean, even the prophet Muhammad, like, during the time of his revelation, like, people accused him of being, like, possessed or, like, you know, being majnun, like, jinn-ridden. So, you sure, know, sure. when, in fact, he had an encounter with the uh, angel Jibreel, you know, so there's yeah. definitely some, you know, uh, overlap between these types of experience, right? But either way, you have yeah. to be careful. These, these are know. a universal type of phenomenon. People have mystical experiences like that, not only on psychedelic drugs, but like just in general, you know. Yeah. Well, um, speaking of psychedelic drugs, actually, there's uh, there is a tie-in that I almost forgot that's in Messengers of Deception. This is kind of a running theme throughout oh, but, the book. Uh, sorry, I just want to say before we move on okay. from this, I do think like you know you can see in that story how that sort of idea of a mystical vision is clearly being politically instrumentalized in the context in which it was written, right? It's from 1861. It clearly has to do with what's what's going on in the country at the time. So you can see, like, the incredible rhetorical power that these ideas, like, have. And this, like, you know, probably people were found this persuasive even though they knew that, like... I mean, probably some people did take it as being genuine. I, I'm certain that they did. But White hats in control, people, trust Grant. Yeah, exactly. People have been doing this type of thing forever. And this is just another ver- This is another iteration of it. Um, I mean, Joan of Arc, like, got visited by an angel and then won a bunch of battles. Like, a teenage girl, like, you know. like Yeah. Yeah, yeah these things happen sometimes, right? 
Yes. And they definitely like have like a political dimension to them. And then you have people who are like, oh, she's a witch, not like, you know, a, mm-hmm. a saint. Right. So it's yeah. like the, um, you know, contestation of these phenomena and, and like these experiences and so, like these people, you know, who yeah. position themselves as being special. Right. Um, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it was small. And that, that $22 million was actually, it wasn't just for this program. It's a complicated situation because it was actually provided to this DIA program that preceded it. But they were very closely linked. So we didn't go into a lot of detail on that because it's just confusing. But but yes, it was a small program. And the reason Elizondo resigned was because of what you just said, that not enough resources were being devoted to it. And he felt that it was a national security problem and that it was extremely important. And he was in a position to know that because he was paying attention to it, which most of the Defense Department was not paying attention to it. So this program, as I understand it, is investigating these reports, which have always trickled in, but are now getting a little bit more collected, of unidentified flying objects. What is the program finding what discoveries are made or conclusions are drawn? I mean, what it, when, when you speak to Elizondo and he's leaving, what does he say has been the result of this? First of all, some of the material, a lot of it was classified, so he couldn't tell me a lot of the details of what I really wanted to know. So even the fact that those videos came out was kind of a miracle because even though it was an unclassified program, actually the fact that the program existed was not classified, but a lot of the information they collected was. You know, they would get case reports, they would get data from these sightings, and they would have their best analysts look at that data, and they would try to find correlations between sightings and try to understand what the various characteristics were of these objects and how they behaved. But the specifics of that were not revealed at the time. I'm always very careful with the word classified because I think when people hear it, they think secret and true. But whatever this program is finding at that point, even though its findings are classified, it's not enough to get blown up into a huge program. Elizondo is not getting promoted up to the ranks. But what it seems to do, and, and tell me if I am getting this wrong, as I understand it, and partially through your story, too, is that Congress interested. So there's this interesting tension again where whatever it's finding isn't doing that much inside the bureaucracy. But then the revelation of the program begins to get real congressional sponsors and, and interests and things begin to turn from there. Is that how you understand the, what happens? Absolutely. That's exactly right. And that's why Elizondo left, because he wanted what you just said to happen. And it did. What ha- And it was because of the story. I mean, the story started the ball rolling in that, in that direction. And within a year or so later, uh, members of Congress were asking to be briefed on this. So then they started to learn what the program knew and what this, whatever this information was that was more specific that could not be revealed to the public was revealed to Congress. And other members of the intelligence world, people started to learn about it. And that, that was good. That's exactly what he was hoping would happen. And so what happens next in Congress? Mainly the House and, and Senate Intelligence Committees were very interested in this, and the interest grew, and more and more of them were briefed over a period of years by different people. And um, eventually they actually authorized the, or set up this UAP task force, which was sort of an offshoot of this original ATIP program that we were talking about earlier, but became a solidly established and funded entity. This entity was instructed by Congress to study these cases and come up with reports, including reports for the public, and to to just investigate this. And, And also members of Congress were more public about speaking out about this 
which, you know, none of this had happened before, Ezra. It was like a sea change from, there's a line you can draw in the year 2017. And I studied this, I was doing this for 20, you know, 17 years before that. So it just was radically different than any member of Congress would even speak about this issue. And they were doing that in various interviews. So it was just kind of bubbling up and becoming much more of a public issue. And they're continuing to be more and more engaged with it as time goes on, even today. You know, just things are escalating for them. So one of the things that happens next is in the 2019 National Defense Authorization Act, which actually passes strangely in 2018. There is some language inserted into the classified annex of that bill pushing the Pentagon to continue these investigations. And over this period of time, a couple things get inserted into bills, as I understand it, that they somewhat that shift is, no, the funding, oh, the structure no of oh, the investigations, whistleblower no protections, uh, etc. So can you tell me a bit about how the governmental black. context changes here? No yeah, I mean, if we no go through, starting from where, no where, what you just uh, mentioned, and go through to the NDAA, the, the National Defense Authorization Act of 2023, we've come a long way because that is the act in which whistleblower protections were offered, specifically for individuals whose security oaths prevented them from talking about the knowledge they had of these programs, some of which may contain physical materials. And the legislation also asks for reports on the acquisition of any physical materials or crash retrievals. They actually mention that, and they write that in there. Also, medical effects on people from close encounters, psychological effects. The fact that Congress is legislating and looking for information and is willing to state something that seems as far out as retrieve materials and then the acknowledgement that whistleblowers may have something to say, which they're prevented to say, yet we want to hear about it, Congress is saying. So this was a, a huge step forward, the, the legislation. And it's been, every year something new gets added to the NDAA that takes it further. <laughs> <laughs> 